Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Come join the fun, we're talking about our lives. Hello everyone, welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. My guest today is Rocky Lang, and he has compiled a book entitled Letters from Hollywood with Barbara Hall, and it it, it shows really a glimpse inside the world of the making of classic American movies, old Hollywood. Rocky, welcome. Thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. And so this this book really, it, it, it's more than just talking about the things that people already know, like the romances between leading men and leading ladies. This is really the actual movie-making business side of it. And you said that you uh, you were inspired while riding in the car by a letter you had received. So tell me a little bit about the inspiration for the book. Well, I came home one day and found a letter from the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences, which was a surprise for me because I am not an Academy member. I'm a Directors Guild member, having mm-hmm. spent my years making movies. And inside the letter, it said, Dear Rocky, you won't remember me, but I am. I was the, uh, the assistant librarian at the American Film Institute when you were a directing fellow in 1980. And now I am the, ar- uh, the acquisitions archivist of the Margaret Herrick Library. And that is the library of the Academy. And he went on to say, I found something that would be of interest to you. And I turned the page, and there in front of me was a letter that my father wrote in 1939. He had just come off the train from Brooklyn. He had $100 in his pocket, no job, and no prospects. And he wrote this amazing letter uh, to H.N. Uh, Swanson, who at that point was the biggest lit agent in Hollywood and represented F. Scott Fitzgerald and Gertrude Stein and a number of other luminaries. And the letter showed my father's voice, his soul, his, his sort of ballsiness, his curiosity, um, and, and it just really moved me. So I, I called Howard, and I thanked him and asked him to lunch. And after lunch, he took me back to the uh, Herrick Library and showed me the archives, which have over 12 million photographs and God knows how many other millions of artifacts, That's including amazing. letters. And, and on the way home, I, I thought, oh, why, I'm going to do a book called Letters from Hollywood. And it would basically be what you described the book as. And I would quickly realize, as with all good ideas, that it's the execution that matters. And I realized, although I've been a filmmaker, I am not a historian or an archivist. So I was, I was, Barbara Hall was suggested to me, who had had 30 years as a historian and worked at the Herrick Library as an archivist. And we partnered up, and the two of us completed this book over a three-year period. That is amazing, and and you said that you you did travel to to complete your research. That you certainly the archives weren't the only source. That you had to contact families and and travel around. Tell me a little about about the process of collecting the information. Well, there there are two parts to that question. The first is you know choosing the letters and finding the letters, and those letters were found in archives, libraries, and in personal personal collections. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, um, I went to the Library of Congress. Uh, to look for letters, and I went to the Kennedy Library, which was fascinating because you wouldn't think you would find the 30-decade uh, or two-decade, I guess, uh, uh, love affair, uh, unconsummated love affair between Ernest Hemingway and, and, uh, and Marlene Dietrich. Mm-hmm. And so I found incredible letters there, and Barbara went to Texas. And, and um, we also had uh, archivists helping us at other libraries that we didn't actually travel to. But we were to a lot of places in Boston University, 
and uh, you know USC, UCLA, AFI, Loyola, uh, with uh, Wisconsin, uh, Brigham Young. You know, we were we were a lot of places to find these letters. Uh, the second part of the question is is that once we had chosen the letters, the question became, you know, who were the who were the rights owners? Because we would the copyright of the letter is with the letter writer, not the receiver. So if we found a letter in John Houston's collection that came from Humphrey Bogart, we needed to go to the Bogart estate and get a release on the letter. And we did that sure. for basically all of the letters except a few that were in the public domain. And that included me having to use a uh, private uh, investigator for a couple of letters because I could not find the rights holders at all. And so that was an interesting journey. And it also was quite surprising because I got to meet, you know, the sons and daughters and grandchildren of these icons. And they had the same reaction that I did when I saw my father's letter, because with a letter, you can hear the voice of your loved ones, because the writing of a letter is very different than a text or an email. It's thoughtful. Many of these were written in hotels. Um, they're emotional. They're, they're, they're poignant. They're, um, they they show, show what was happening in the 20th century through the blacklist, World War II, you know, all the things, uh, the pre-code era, um, censorship, and, of course, the friendships and the, and the camaraderie of the filmmakers. Most definitely. That, that is one thing that really struck me while I was reading it. I was thinking these friendships between these people are so evident, especially male friendships. I mean, the, people do not communicate that way anymore. It's just quick information, and these were really um, – some of them were really quite poetic. But rewinding for a second, you were talking about your father. And so you grew up in Hollywood. Tell me a little bit about your parents. Well, my, my, both my parents were depression babies, uh, pretty much came from uh, uh, nothing. I mean, my mother's side had, uh, were very successful in Chicago as musicians and composers, but they were hit very hard by the depression, lost everything. And so uh, when they ultimately, the careers took a path where my dad became an agent, um, ultimately a very, became a very important agent representing Joan Crawford and Humphrey Bogart and, and a, a lot of stars and a lot of, uh, you know, writers and directors, and, and he was with MCA, and that ultimately bought Universal. He became an executive at Universal and then a producer doing 35 movies, including Earthquake and Airport, and gave Clint his first directing gig with Play Misty for me, and Spielberg his first directing gig with Sugarland Express. And so he had a, a tremendously big career. Was, my dad and I were extremely close. Uh, it was a great childhood. And my mom was a big singer. She, uh, she sang on the Benny Goodman show when she was 16. She stood in line. As he went through a bunch of girl vocalists, as they called them then, and my mom was chosen, and that just kick-started her career, and she had a uh, deal with Decca Records, and she actually was also the voice of Chiquita Banana, um, <laughs> as well as, as doing, as, all, as well as doing a, a lot of uh, television and, and, and feature movies, and so that was the world I grew up in, and um, I, I think because they had come from nothing, you know, even though we lived this sort of extraordinary life where I did, they kept me very grounded um, as much as they could. And, and, uh, and I was always aware uh, of the, my fortunate uh, existence, let's say. Sure. And how do you feel like uh, Hollywood in general has, has changed from the time that you were growing up to now? Because you are a, a writer and a director and producer. So um, the things that you witnessed growing up and the things you're experiencing now, how has it changed? Well, it's not only when I was growing up. If you go back into, and look at the letters in the book and, and the movies that they're, uh, they're talking about is that 
the movies, certainly in the 70s and, and before that, were generally character-driven films, and that you followed an emotional arc of the, of the main characters in, in, in the script. Mm-hmm. And and today, for the most part, all the movies are event movies. It's a you know they're action movies, they're remakes and sequels, they're branded content. And mm-hmm. a lot of that has to do with these studios have been bought by these multinational corporations, and so they're just a line item, you know, in a bigger scheme. And so they're driven to like you know do, make as much money as possible with these big budgets, which is called tentpole movies. And so the independent filmmaker, the visionary. You know, when you get in the 70s and you get, you know, Scorsese coming out of that, Coppola coming out of that, that, that group, and so many other incredible directors, um, you, you know, they, were, they had, were visionaries with storytelling. And now it's really not. It's, 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 commi- it's script by committee. Uh, there's not belief so much in the filmmaker unless you're you know, a superstar. And, um, and that's what we have. And I sort of look back to my dad's film, Earthquake, because if you go back to 1973, the movie was released in 74, you go back then and you think about, like, my dad coined the word an event, because, and Earthquake was built as an event. It had sense around, which, you know, made the theater shake when the earthquake came. It was gimmicky. It was a lot of, a lot of uh, thought went into, you know, international sales. And my dad knew back in the 70s that at some point, you know, you were going to have to give, uh, you know, people a reason to get out of their house from watching TV you know, before what we have now with all the, all the t- television outlets. Yeah. But you're going to have to give people a reason to get out of the house and drive in traffic and go to a movie and spend money on popcorn and, you know, have this evening out as opposed to staying in your house and watching something. And so right. he sort of saw the future. And yet he, and he was making these event movies then, although he also made Slaughterhouse-Five and he made House Calls and he made, you know, a number of other, you know, tremendous uh, movies that were not as big a hits as his action films. So that, that's what I would say. And it's sad for me because there's a whole group of, you know, of, of creative people who have something to say and want to put something out there. And there's the, the, the keyhole to the, to the castle has become the size of a, you know, a pin. And so it's very hard to penetrate that. On the other hand, TV has blossomed and then you can, you have a lot more outlets to TV. And some of that great writing is now being seen on TV as opposed to in theatricals. That, that is very true, yeah. The, the art of storytelling and the, the following the personal arc of a character really has uh, popped up much more in TV than in motion pictures lately. That is very true. Um, and you've, you've written books before this one, and, but this is the first one that was, um, that was compiled with such arduous research. Um, and we're on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, so a lot of our listeners are writers. So tell me a little bit about the difference in writing a book like this and writing what you've written in the past. Well, I, as in my film career, I've tried not to be pigeonholed against the better judgment of my you know, agents because mm-hmm. uh, I just like so many things. So um, the difference, obviously, the, the most fun I ever had writing was uh, my novel called The Big Nasty. And the reason why that was so much fun for me, and I think your writers will understand this, is that when you're writing screenplays, which I was used to doing, you, you know, you're confined to a form, you're confined to a page count, you know, first act breaks, second act breaks, third act breaks, or, you know, five, seven act breaks in TV, depending right. on what you're writing. And, yeah. and so there's a form to it. And also, uh, you can't express an in, internal conflict. You know, pretty much you have to, you know, show the action or tell the action and tell what the problem is, or, because you, can, you just can't do that. And right. it, it doesn't make any sense. But in, in, in free writing and novel writing, 
you have this incredible ability to say, oh, as I saw this cup of coffee, it reminded me of the time back in, you know, when I was a kid and my mom, you know, you, so now you, you, know, you go off in a completely different direction in the book. I had never even free- thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that freedom of writing is liberating to a writer who's been confined. confined. The problem is, is that nobody reads fiction unless you're Stephen King or, you know, the big, the big names. And it's much harder in the publishing world today, same as the film world. To you know, to to sell to sell fiction without a name or a big name, mm-hmm. um, and and so, so that was one liberating book. I did two humor books, which were just because I needed a break in my life. And one was called Confessions of Emergency Room Doctors. I did with Andrews McNeil McNeil Publishing. And that actually did really well, and that was really a fun book. Um, and and another fun book I did is if you thought your divorce was bad, wait, you read this book, which is again a compiling of the craziest stories of people's, you know, nutty divorces. And, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And then, and then I, I wrote another book, a Hollywood book, which I did with Harper Collins, which uh, Judith Reagan was our editor. And I wrote it with Pablo Fenves, known as the man who coined the word, the plaintive whale. He lived across the alley from Nicole Simpson. And, uh, and so Pablo is a, a good writer. And we wrote a book called how I broke into Hollywood. And that was, a lot of interviews with people all over the business, whether they were, you know, they were makeup people or monster effects people or big directors and, and writers and actors. And, and that book really was a compilation of how people broke into the business. And what I found in that book when we compiled all the interviews is that the, the, the number one thing that ran across all the stories was the passion for the business. It wasn't like they just wanted to be in the business, but they had to be in the business. Right. The existence of their yourself was about making films. And so that was that, you know, that book. And then another book about Hollywood that I wrote is called Growing Up Hollywood, which is a, a really a, mem- a sort of memoir of me growing up um, in the shadow of my father in, in the 70s and 80s and 90s and all the crazy things that happened along the way, uh, you know, payoffs to the mafia, you know, to, to have them stop the people from slashing the tires of the trucks for production because they need more, they wanted more money payoffs and, and just, you know, the playboy, playboy mansion and, and experiences. And there, it's really, it did really well. And uh, it was a fun book to write. And that led me to this book, which is a completely different animal animal. Uh, the, the great side of it is that it opened me up to learning about things I didn't know about in Hollywood and getting close to some of these people. Uh, the bad side for me, it was three years of, of not creative writing and it was really research dependent. And for me, I, I like narrative and I, you know, I like to create things out of nothing. And, and so I missed that process. And so I'm getting back to that in 2020. Um, probably won't do another book like this, although people are talking to us about doing a, a second volume because we only had a, have 137 letters in the book and over 800 we looked at. So we have plenty of backups. Um, and, uh, but I don't think that's in the cards for me, at least for a year or so. Um, sure. Because I just I need to do something creative right now, you know. Along the way, I'm making movies and TVs and shows and whatnot. So you're so, you're a busy uh, man. <laughs> you yeah. you are actively <laughs> creative. Yes. A movie just wrapped in uh, Atlanta last week uh, for Lifetime. I, I'm executive producing it, so you know. But oh. now I've got my slate's clear. Excellent, excellent. Now you can do your book tour, and you're going to be at the <laughs> Miami Book Fair at the end of the month, aren't you? I will be. I'm actually driving down uh, the coast uh, 
the East Coast with my wife, and we uh, went to Philadelphia to see our, our kid finish her, her soccer at, at last game at senior, senior night at 10. And then now we're in beautiful Hilton Head Island after being in Charleston, try, in the middle of this crazy storm where it's, you know, 40 degrees outside. You know, there's, I'm not sure what – I was so happy you wanted to do this interview. It gave me something to do because I don't want to go outside. <laughs> <laughs> so I got two events in Sarasota. And then on to Miami, where I'll see uh, do the book fair. Yeah. So back to back to the book. You decided you would only do one letter per person. So how in the world did you narrow it down from the 800? Um, because you really did kind of tell a story of every aspect of filmmaking. How did you pick? Well, uh, you're close. We have I think Hedda Hopper has two letters in the book. I think because uh, they were so interesting. Um, how did we pick? Well, uh, Barbara, who is absolutely an incredible historian, uh, uh, pointed me in a lot of directions to find the letters, and she found a lot of the letters. And then we talked about the letters and the significance of the letters and where they fit in the history of Hollywood. And it would, the choices were very, very difficult. I mean, you know, for instance, uh, there's a letter, there's a letter uh, you know, about, the, about censorship and about Spartacus. And uh, and so, you know, we could probably have done an entire book on on the code and censorship because there's so many interesting letters, absolutely incredibly interesting letters. But, you know, we just we didn't want to we wanted to make room for everything else. So I was trying to basically find, you know, uh, the, the most interesting and, and the letters to our readers and also some more uh, subtle letters that our readers would enjoy. But, you know, film history, film, real film fans would get would understand it right um, you know who'd al- already know for instance that you know Hedda Hopper and Catherine Hepburn had sort of a war and so when you see the letter from Catherine Hepburn uh to uh I mean Hedda Hopper to Catherine Hepburn and Hepburn's reply um you can just read those letters on the surface without knowing the background but if you know the background you go wow this is pretty amazing right and um, you know and and so that's pretty much what it was, was it, and also we needed to you know fill decades up because we wanted enough letters uh to fill the fill the decades we didn't want to have like you know five letters from the 40s and you know 30 letters from the 30s or something so some of that had to do with you know what we found and i originally wanted to actually take the book up to email but uh, a couple of things that i found along the way is that um you know people stopped writing letters and the other thing is that there were a lot of people a lot of people who are alive right now are reluctant to give their letters up Whereas the, the estates are very willing to give them because they, they understand that we're trying to keep a legacy of their family alive, alive yeah, through, the, yeah. through the letters. And so, um, you know, some people just didn't want to give them up. And, and, and uh, you know, and that was just, I mean, we got Tom Hanks and we got Angelica Houston and Jane Fonda and Norman Jewison. So, you know, we do have a number of letters of people who are alive today. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and they, I love they, the one about you know, that, that Tom Hanks wrote as a young as a young man trying to break into Hollywood. That would oh, that it's hilarious. tell the listeners about yeah. that a little bit. Well, Tom was 17 years old, and from what I'm told, he was living on a houseboat someplace in New England, and he had just seen The Sting, and he uh, wrote a letter to director George Roy Hill, who had done Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid before that. And the letter is so funny because it's, it's, it's uh, self-deprecating on Tom's part. And he says, you know, you, you may, I'm paraphrasing this, he says, you know, I, I'm not very good looking, but neither was Bogart. And uh, I don't drive a car, and, but I'm pretty good on the pogo stick. 
and he basically goes through all the stuff about why George Roy Hill should hire him for one of his movies. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's it's very funny. And then uh, George Roy Hill responds to him in a very funny letter as well. And then you know we who knew that Tom Hanks would be Tom Hanks? Right. And this exactly. was all very much you know very much before that. And I was I was wondering if Tom would let, let us have it, but he gave, once he saw the letter, he gave it gave it, sent a release over that very day, he, as as did Coppola. You know, Coppola was you know fun, also there was Gatekeepers, which mm-hmm. was really weird along the lines. So I like you know with, with Coppola, uh, Barbara found this great letter that Coppola wrote to Sam Goldwyn when he had done uh, his first movie called You're a Big Boy Now, and so I called Coppola's attorney. No answer. Emailed no answer. You know, gave him the whole history of the book and what we wanted to do. No answer. And called up the you know, zoetrope and no answer. No answer. No answer. And then I I did a movie, uh, a four-hour miniseries with a guy named Fred Fuchs, who at that time was president of Zoetrope. And I called Fred. I said, you know, I, I'm hitting a brick wall trying to get get the France to see this letter. Do you know anybody? He says, Well, I've been out of there ten years, but call the family archivist. So I called the family archivist. And she had her assistant who was like maybe a 22-year-old kid call me. And uh, I sent him the letter. And he said, oh, my God, this is great. I'll run it over to Francis's office. You know, five minutes later, bang, I got an email. Francis loves, loves it. Send the release. Sent the release right away. And like an hour later, I had the release back from Francis. So it shows you that these gatekeepers, you know, know nothing about it. Just, you know, it's so easy to like throw this letter out. You read it in 25 seconds. And so, you know, and and I, I, you know, I had those problems along the way, uh, usually with big names of people who are, you know, alive or locked archives. Um, Universal archive is a locked archive, not open to researchers. And yet my dad was there 35 years and I had a, I had to pull some amazing end arounds where I went actually through the very top from the head of the person of Comcast down to the president of Universal and circled down ultimately to the guy who said no to me. And uh, and so when he saw all these email copies from all these bigwigs uh, saying the book sounded great, he said, "Oh yeah, absolutely." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, 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 uh, so so I you know I, both sides you know if I come through the top I come through the bottom, and uh, and and the weird thing about Universal, which was so sad, is that I wanted to include some of the monster movies from Universal International. Mm-hmm. So when I made the request from what I wanted, all those letters were destroyed in a flood because they had like 25 years of Universal International Pictures stored on a soundstage that was by the L.A. River, which, by the way, almost never has water in it. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge storm, and it, it flooded over, and it flooded into the stage, and all those letters were destroyed. And so, you know, I couldn't get any of those letters. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so it was a really interesting journey, a lot of twists and turns along the way. It sounds like it. And, and it's... It... Speaking of the gatekeepers, how would someone who, uh, for all of the writers out there, who doesn't know anyone in the business, who's just starting out, how would someone break into screenwriting? Is it, is it, is it blind luck? Well, if you're talking about screenwriting, I think it's different than the publishing world. I think what screenwriting is, is that, you know, it's, it's really hard today to do it, um, but it's not impossible. And I think that, you know, first of all, you what I I read so many like not as much anymore, but I, I I you know I still get a few few now and then. But I used to get tons of unsolicited material from young writers, and I always was open to looking at them because I you know you never know right you know you find something and and so um, you know most of the time with young writers is that 
They just haven't had enough experience in writing. And so it's not that their idea is bad. It's just that they just haven't written, you know, like I wrote 10 scripts before I wrote a good script. And mm-hmm. the other scripts were, were all good ideas. I just didn't have the experience. And so what I, you know, what I would say to them is, first of all, make sure you have a good piece of material. And if you have 100 bucks, I would get that script covered. You know, there are plenty of people in Hollywood that can go online, story editors, and you pay, pay somebody who's completely neutral to break yeah. your script down. And give you, and, and so you get a sense of what a, a, you know an honest reader is looking at who has no attention to. Now, if you're in, in that great shape, then you have to start to go to some of these you know these conferences where agents come and you pitch your project, and you know because most people will not take unsolicited material, you know, right. and, and you know you try to find you just try to find a way in, um, and that's and a lot of it's just luck. I mean, I'll tell you an incredibly lucky story that's like the weirdest thing ever, is that. Um, when I was starting out my career, I had written a script called uh, uh, Race for Glory, and it was originally called American Built. Created the script, and, and uh, it got submitted into Columbia Pictures. Now, there's another, and they passed on it. And so there was another producer who went in there, and apparently he would, he would always give this guy, this Columbia executive, terrible scripts. So the guy walks in with another terrible script, and the executive of Columbia says, Hey, John. I cannot read these things anymore. You're wasting my time and my staff's time. Every script you give me is terrible. You see the stack of scripts over here? Every one of those scripts we're passing on, every one of those are 10 times as good as the stuff you give me. Pick any of them that's better. And he pulls out of the stack my script. And that movie gets made. Okay? <laughs> All right. You know, that, that's like dumb luck, okay? Right, that, that, absolutely. That's completely dumb luck. On the other side, I had two green light pictures, one at Disney and one at United Artists. And they're ready to go out to directors, and the head of production decided to leave jobs, and my scripts went in the trash because the new president comes in, and you know she's in that case it was a woman named Lindsay Duran, and she wasn't going to make a final project that uh, a project that, uh, that the other executives had developed. Now, fortunately, we got that script out of United Artists, and uh, and got that movie made over at Disney with Ridley Scott directing and Jeff Bridges starring, and so. Oh, yeah. um, so, so that was, you know, that was, uh, you know, bad luck ultimately, and it actually turned out okay in the end. Definitely. Well, you've given us a look into current filmmaking and classic filmmaking. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, and I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Um, the book Thank is called. Thank you so much. Yeah, the book is called Letters from Hollywood, Inside the Private World of Classic American Movie Making by Rocky Lang and Barbara Hill. Rocky, thank you so much. Thank you, Shannon. And for Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, this is Shannon Fisher. I'll see you next time.